With the news media reporting increasingly more data breaches and cybersecurity events, and the use of personal data in ways that invade people's privacy, you need to know how to keep your business's data, not to mention your own personal data, safe from hacks and your business operating in the most secure environment. Otherwise, this can not only hurt your business reputation, it can cost you clients. Welcome to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor. We're here to help you prevent potential damages and losses before the hackers even have your number. Now, here is the Privacy Professor and your host, Rebecca Harold. Hello and welcome to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor. I'm Rebecca Harold, your host. Thank you for joining us. Welcome to the 80th episode of my show. Please subscribe to my show on iTunes, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, Player FM, Google Play, Overcast, TuneIn, Podtoppin, or whatever your favorite podcast or news app is. Also, please subscribe to my show on the Voice America Business Channel website. Then you'll be notified just as soon as each new show is available. Also, thank you to all my now 148,000 plus listeners throughout the world. I truly do appreciate you listening. My October Privacy Professor Tips message was published on September 30th. Please sign up for them. I've provided them for free since 2007 in an effort to increase general awareness of information security and privacy issues. And also I do it to provide a free awareness publication for organizations to send to their employees. You know, budgets are tight and organizations need to have all the help they can. So a lot of organizations use these tips to raise those awareness levels. You can sign up for them by going to privacyguidance.com and submitting your email in the box in the upper right part of your screen. Now today, I'm covering the next in my series of shows about voting security. And this is going to be the last of my shows in this series that will air prior to the U.S. general election on November 3. Now, of course, many throughout the U.S. are already voting early. So the information we discuss today will help to inform those of you who have yet to vote uh, about the various security issues involved with different methods of voting. And add to this the consideration that, you know, there have been some really significant changes in early voting as well. For this election as compared to 2016. Um, For example, here in Iowa, where I live, in 2016, absentee voting ballots were first available to be used for voting on September 29th. And absentee ballots needed to be postmarked back in 2016 by Monday, November 6th, the day before the general election day, and they had to have been received by noon Monday on November 14, so after the election, uh, to be counted. However, this year, 2020, 
for the general election. The dates allowed for early voting is October 5th through November 2nd, and the ballots must be received by November 3rd, which is the same day as the general election. So just think about it. The time allowed for mail-in absentee or early in-person voting is 29 days now in 2020, whereas it was 42 days in 2016. So we lost 14 days of voting time in Iowa for the 2020 general election compared to the time we had in 2016. And now in Iowa, identification verification information is also required. So this shortened time allowed for voting combined with changes with the U.S. Postal Service that have reportedly delayed mail delivery is certainly a significant concern in and of itself. But other concerns that have been talked about increasingly in the news are also raising a lot of fears, I think, in the public. Um, These concerns are being raised by the politicians themselves, and that's the security of the ballots, those that are absentee ballots and mailed-in ballots or ballots that are provided via Dropbox or those that are allowed for early voting in person prior to the general election day, along with concerns about the security of the ballots and voting choices at the poll centers themselves using voting machines and hard copy ballots on the general election day. You know, I'm sure if any of you have watched online news or TV news, any news anywhere, newspapers, there's just so many conspiracy theories about voting fraud, conspiracy theories about, quote, millions of counterfeit ballots, end quote, and conspiracy theories about people, quote, voting multiple times, end quote. It's creating great concern throughout the general public. I see it online in my Facebook and my LinkedIn and my Twitter feeds, along with concerns about those shortened voting timeframes and concerns about voting during a global pandemic, uh, and rightly so. Um, We're just inundated with all these concerns. So I think it's important that we know what the verifiable facts are with regard to the security of ballots. So, you know, how are those ballots secured and, and what security protections are in place? Well, my guests today are voting security experts, and they have done extensive research into voting security, and they are also co-authors of the new research report that's also available in book form, and it's entitled An Assessment of State Voting Processes Preparing for Elections During a Pandemic. Now, I hope all my IT and information security, privacy, and legal professionals listening right now, go read this. You can get access to it online. And I hope that all my students 
who are listening from high schools through colleges and grad schools. I hope that you read this also. It really is a great example of a well-done research report and associated analysis. Now, I also want to point out that my guests are also authors of many other research reports uh, on voting, on elections, and associated issues. Today, I'm speaking with Jennifer Cavanaugh and Quentin Hodgson. Jennifer Cavanaugh is director of the Strategy, Doctrine, and Resources Program in the Rand Arroyo Center and a senior political scientist at the Rand Corporation. Jennifer also leads Rand's Countering Truth Decay Initiative. Jennifer's research focuses on U.S. defense strategy, international conflict and military interventions, disinformation, and the relationship between U.S. political and media institutions. Jennifer earned her Ph.D. in political science and public policy at the University of Michigan. Quentin Hodgson is a senior researcher at the RAND Corporation focusing on cybersecurity, cyber operations, critical infrastructure protection, risk management, and command and control. Quentin is also a member of the faculty at the Party RAND Graduate School. Quentin has led projects for the U.S. Office of the Secretary of Defense, the U.S. Department of Homeland Security, U.S. Navy, the U.S. Air Force, and NATO's Allied Command Transformation. Quentin holds an M.A. in International Relations from the Johns Hopkins University School of Advanced International Studies and a Master of Science in National Resource Management from the Industrial College of the Armed Forces. Now, this is just a little bit about Jennifer and Quentin. You can see more about them on my Voice America show site in the bios provided for this episode. Jennifer and Quentin, thank you so much for being my guests today. Welcome to my show. Well, thanks well, thank for, having for having us. Well, I'm so excited to talk about um, this topic with you and also your research. Now, first, though, I'd like to start out because, of course, many in the public have been subjected to misinformation and in increasingly more instances, just outright lies about voting security. You know, they've been hearing things about what has and has not happened. And when I'm watching what's going on in my social media circles and seeing what my friends and colleagues and people I know uh, throughout the world are saying, even when they're presented with facts and verifiable research results, I see and hear people who want, it seems like they want to believe the conspiracy theory claims that information was either not objective or it was paid for by a special interest group. So I'm wondering, can you provide a high-level overview <laughs> describing how your voting research was conducted in a nonpartisan and objective manner. Maybe Jennifer, can you provide that info? Sure. Objectivity and nonpartisanship is one of, of RAND's core principles. It's something that we always strive to achieve in all of our research for all of our sponsors and clients. 
basically that means that we start with the data. We don't go into a research project with preconceived notions of what we're going to find or an idea of what we want to or have to find. Instead, we start with the data and let the data tell us the answers to our questions. So for this specific project, we really focused on identifying what are the procedures and processes for voting in each state, and, and, it, and it varies a lot state by state. So we spent a lot of time trying to make sure that our data was accurate, looking at different uh, resources, um, state websites, calling different state offices to make sure that we had the details right. Uh, and then when it came time to assess states on those dimensions, on the um, how easy it would be for them to shift to remote and distributed processes to manage the challenges of the pandemic, how prepared they were to deal with some of the security um, and cyber threats. We really tried to focus on evaluating them based on objective uh, measures. So not subjective measures, but looking at data. Um, do they have this policy? Do they not have this policy? What does the research tell us about how different voting uh, processes and rules uh, remote voting, early voting, uh, automatic voter registration. What do we know from the data about um, how that affects turnout? Or what do we know about incidents? Incidents. Incident? You know, you uh, assess the data. Oh, go ahead. So that's how we that that's how we make sure that it's objective. Is really focusing on um, objective measures and evaluating the data itself rather than subjectively um, imposing. Uh, assessment. You said something that I think is worth repeating for our listeners because so many times when you hear these conspiracy theory claims, it almost sounds like um, voting is the same throughout all the different states. But I like that you pointed out the voting is different, the processes and rules and so on is different in each state. And I think a lot of people just simply don't realize that. And uh, some of these claims about uh, how, you know, the fraudulent votes uh, are occurring or whatever, it, it just kind of uh, implies that everything is done the same from state to state. So I like the fact that you're pointing out that uh, each state has its own processes. Um, yeah, I mean, it's it, not even the same within a given state. Um, you know, different jurisdictions have different um, different forms sometimes. They have different numbers of polling places. Um, so even some of the details may differ from jurisdiction to jurisdiction within one state. Yeah, that is so important for, for folks to understand. And you mentioned about voter registration. And this is another area that I've seen so many different claims about voter registration. You know, there's many reports of attempts to alter voter registration databases and not only just, you know, by hacking attempts by um, hostile nation states, but even internal to the U.S. by, you know, different groups and so on, or even folks who are insiders trying to make changes and then other claims about the accuracy of the voter registration files. Um, and and some people are even trying to say that trying to make voting easier, voting voter registration and voting itself easier for eligible voters also results in increased instances of fraud. So I'm wondering, maybe, Quentin, can you speak to uh, just in general about voter registration databases and the 
the types of fraud that may be there or the mistakes or accuracy involved? Sure. I, I think one of the first things is take a step back. Remember that, uh, as Jennifer was just talking about, there, that states and jurisdictions vary. And, and that's because under the Constitution, the, the conduct and administration of, of elections in the United States is in the purview of the states. And some states are highly centralized in how they do that. Um, they manage it from the state level. So you think Delaware, Georgia, for example. Others are a lot more federated even within the states. And as you go back to the aftermath of the 2000 election, uh, with the uh, issues around counting ballots in Florida, what, one of the outgrowths of that was the Help America Vote Act, which was passed by Congress in 2002. And one of the things it did was it mandated that states had to maintain a voter registration database. Uh, one of the concerns was also just the number of times that um, you've uh, seen that people seem to be on voter registration rolls for when and would stay on those rolls even though they'd moved or they died. And, they, and there was a lot of concern about accuracy. So states set those up. But in, in, in some states, you have a, a system that's called bottom-up, where a jurisdiction is responsible for essentially having the voter registration database of record. So they take in the registrations. They pass a copy of that to the state level, and the state maintains a copy. Others are a top-down version where the state really runs the, the registration database. And then you even have high uh, Texas is an example of a hybrid uh, where sometimes the state will maintain the registration database on behalf of some counties, but other counties like Harris County, which is the largest um, in the state, that it does it itself. And so just this disparity already creates um, some differences. And if you think about the, the various jurisdictions around the country, there are some 8,800 jurisdictions in the United States that are responsible for running elections, and they have various levels of resources available to them. Some are very well-resourced because they're larger, they have a bigger tax base, and others are much smaller. Um, within California, for example, you have Los Angeles County, it's over 5 million registered voters, it's the largest in the country, uh, but it also there's Modoc County in the north part of the state, which is about 6,000 voters. So there's just that significant variability. So I think the first thing is that uh, some, as they've migrated to having voter registration databases that are centralized, that are hosted on web servers, uh, on servers that can be accessed remotely, you have to make sure that who is able to access those uh, voter registration databases and can not only read, but can also make changes to those records, you have to control who has access to that. Some states have even outsourced it where they allow third parties, um, software companies, or some of the major vendors like uh, ES&S, which is one of the major vendors of election equipment in the United States, to actually host this on their behalf. Uh, so what you'll see is there's a lot of variability just in terms of the security infrastructure and the security controls that are put in place uh, to secure voter registration. And, you know, the history of voter fraud in the United States, obviously over 200 plus years of the Republic, we have a long history of it. Uh, we certainly have a lot of uh, instances of fraud in our deep, dark past. More recently, there's there's less confirmed cases, but that doesn't mean it doesn't happen. And that includes people who try to register to vote under false names or multiple times. But then there are just errors that creep into the system. And just to close it out, one example is when California transitioned to automatic voter registration, they did accidentally uh, register about 1,500 people who were not eligible to vote. 
they caught that error and they rolled it back. But that, to your point, doesn't prevent, in some cases, people assuming that there was actual nefarious activity behind it. In some cases, uh, it, it's just pure mistakes or just errors as they transition to a different system, uh, and as you, we can all imagine. Uh, and in some cases, there may actually be concerted effort on some people's part to commit fraud. Uh, we're certainly not going to sit here and say fraud doesn't occur in the United States. But then there's security controls in place to flag those, right? Or, or there should be. I mean, like you said, it's different throughout all the, the states and then even in the different precincts and so on. But um, I would imagine there are, are different types of, of checks and balances and, and uh, ways to flag if something is happening that looks suspicious so that things are caught or it, as many things as possible are caught. When people try to do things, yeah, there certainly are. There are a couple of uh, things that that happen. The first is that uh, there are 30 states plus the District of Columbia that participate in something called ERIC, which is a cross-state, essentially, check of voter registration databases so that as people move or register new places, they can check against the voter registration databases across multiple states just to say, this person is registering here. Do they have a record somewhere else? And that's one way that you can try to clean it up. So that's that's mm-hmm. trying to establish and understand, it, are we just seeing a registration happen that, that should or shouldn't happen? And, and, and that's one level. This The second level is making sure that when people who are uh, election workers are accessing these uh, voter registration databases, and, and you have to think that in the United States, most people probably end up registering to vote in a, in a couple of ways. Uh, one of the most popular is um, through other resources available to them, usually something like when they go to get their driver's license mm-hmm. ever since the mid-90s with the, the motor voter bill, um, they have the option to uh, register to vote at the same time. And so that record is created or that application is created in one government agency and it has to be handed off to another government agency. And so there, there are there are checks against the actual data to make sure that they're they're correct. Um, things that are very basic, for example, uh, making sure that if somebody puts a street address into for where they live, that that's a street address that exists, um, and that you know it's it's not uh, registered to somebody else. Uh, there may be also some cases, as you know, you mentioned for, for Iowa, that they will actually make sure that y- they either have a copy of your, uh, your driver's license or at least your, your driver's license number, or they may require information about you, such as your social security number, uh, these various checks that are done to make sure that you're a valid person. Um, in, in addition to uh, sort of general around the system to make sure that the people who are accessing it um, are the people who should have access to it. And that would, in some cases, involve uh, trying to implement stronger identification uh, and and verification of that, that user, multi-factor authentication, for example, trying to also monitor the use, which would be a more advanced uh, form of security as well. Yes. And, you know, something else that struck me, too, and I think is important for our listeners and actually all voters to understand is you're talking about thousands of people, right, who are involved in... Uh, making sure that the registration uh, lists are accurate and so on. And I, and I would anticipate this is like a multi-step process because you have people within the towns that are probably updating 
those registration lists, but it's not instantaneous. I mean, it's not like they update it and it goes to the central voting database and just boom, it's change. Isn't there usually like they change it maybe at the, the city level and then the city sends it to the county and the county to the state or, or something like that? Well, it will, it will, as I mentioned, it, it will vary depending on how the system is, is implemented. And in some cases, yes, um, e- even if, for example, I went online to my state secretary of state website and I wanted to register, uh, it may direct me to a local uh, jurisdiction to actually fill out the form online if I'm going to do it that way. Or I can also do mail-in registration in many cases or go to a registration office where they check to make sure that the information is, is accurate on there, uh, including that, the, as I said before, that the address actually exists. Uh, but that was really going to vary from state to state and jurisdi- jurisdiction to jurisdiction exactly how that functions. Yeah, I, I know I've seen uh, folks online, they're like, well, you know, my mother or a relative died two months ago, but now I'm getting someone uh, coming to my door saying that they know that my relative, you know, is registered to vote. And they're like, well, why are they coming in and saying my relative is registered to vote? They died. They should no longer be on, on the registration list. So it's almost like they're using that lag in the update time of the registration list is evidence, if you will, that uh, that all the registration database is untrustworthy or that it's not accurate. But I don't know, maybe correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like that's just a, a, a matter of, of the reality of how long it can take in some places to get the registration databases and lists updated. Well, that certainly could be the case. The other thing is, depending on who's coming to the door to check on registration, yeah. you know, voter uh, lists are actually available to many people. Campaigns can get access to them, and it depends when they got access to that information. So your example, yeah. my, my relative passed away two months ago. They may have pulled that registration, that voter list, well before that. Mm-hmm. A- and there is also sometimes lag as well. Right. Well, you know what? We're, it's already time for a quick break. Uh, to hear from our sponsors. So um, right now, I want to take a quick break, but I want to remind you that I'm speaking today with Jennifer Cavanaugh and Quentin Hodgson from Rand Corporation. We're talking about voting security. I'm your host, Rebecca Harold, the privacy professor. You can contact me with questions and comments about this show, as well as show su- uh, topic suggestions using my email Rebecca Harold at RebeccaHerald.com and also through my privacyguidance.com website. Please stay with us. We'll be right back after these important messages from my sponsors. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. The Privacy Professor is your trusted source for effective information security, privacy and compliance advice, compliance tools, education, consulting, expert witness services, research, report writing, and board positions. Visit us online at privacyguidance.com. Rebecca also provides keynote speeches and her free Privacy Professor monthly tips messages she has published since 2007. Visit privacyguidance.com for help and answers to your questions. 
The Privacy Security Brainiacs team wants everyone responsible for security, privacy, and compliance to stay up to date with the latest news, risks, and security and privacy practices. Check out their growing library of topics not offered by others. Privacy Security Brainiacs also wants every business to perform automated risk assessments, which are free or value-priced for all types of security and privacy topics. You need to find out more about Privacy Security Brainiacs. Visit PrivacySecurityBrainiacs.com. Find out what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network by keeping up with us on Twitter. You can find us at VoiceAmericaTRN. You are listening to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor. If you have a question or comment about the program, feel free to send an email to Rebecca Harold at RebeccaHerald.com. That's Rebecca Harold at RebeccaHerald.com. Now, back to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor. Welcome back data security and privacy with the privacy professor on Voice America's business channel. I'm your host, Rebecca Harold. I'm speaking today with Jennifer Cavanaugh and Quentin Hodgson from Rand Corporation, and we're talking about voting security. So now I want to, to get into uh, a topic that I'm also seeing a lot of discussion online about, Not only that, but I'm seeing it more and more often on TV reports and so on. Uh, And just to start out as an example, you know, there were multiple news outlets that reported that more than 534,000 mail-in ballots were rejected during the primaries across 23 states this year, 2020. And those were rejected after it was determined the signatures didn't match, or for voter errors in not following the mail-in voting instructions. And oh my gosh, after these uh, reports came out, I saw many folks were concerned. They're like, oh no, you know, my mailed-in votes are going to be thrown out because some untrained person Uh, or a partisan poll worker who doesn't like what I checked on my ballot will simply say that a signature doesn't match, and so they're going to throw it out. And then the voter will never know that their vote was not counted. So I'm wondering, um, you know, is this a valid concern about signature matching issues um, you know, and, and, you know, first of all, how, how do we even know what, what amount of fraudulent signatures actually occurs and, and what are the issues related to this? Maybe, um, Quentin, do you want to lead with this one? Sure. Uh, so signature matching is one of the primary ways that, uh, people who vote absentee, uh, verify that they are actually the voter. Um, uh, there are some States that do require additional steps, um, such as having, uh, either a notary or a witness sign the ballot, uh, in addition to the voter. Uh, and in, in, uh, some cases, you know, that can be particularly under conditions of pandemic, a particularly onerous burden and, um, at least uh, one state has changed that for for the temporarily for this election, and signature matching. Um, typically, what happens is that 
it's it's you sign the outside of the envelope that uh, if you're sending it in and then inside you have your ballot that should be in a separate privacy sleeve so that the first thing that happens is that when they get the ballot in the in the precinct of the jurisdiction they're going to check your signature against a copy of your signature they have on file which is usually one that's captured when you've registered to vote and that may have happened at the dmv for example when you signed up for your your driver's license or some other government id when you get that in in most states most jurisdictions that's done manually and, and elections workers are trained on it but there are a number of states and jurisdictions that are using software to assist in that um I, i'm I don't think that there are any that are actually wholly turning it over to machines. They sometimes will allow uh, optical scanning to do signature matching, and then they will spot check those. Or if there are ones that are rejected, they may do a second look with human pair of eyes. But people are trained on it, and it's a pretty laborious task. Of course, in this election cycle, when you think about the number of people who are going to want to vote absentee, uh, the volume is going to, I think, stress the system, particularly for having to do that uh, uh, eye, you know, naked eyeball look at the signatures. And we know from research that in some cases, a number of uh, populations are actually more, apparently disproportionately uh, disadvantaged by that. So younger people and minorities uh, tend to have much higher rates of rejection of their, uh, their ballot based on a, a signature match. And some of that makes sense in the sense, you know, younger people don't tend to write uh, by hand much anymore. And so their signature may vary. Um, but, you know, naturally, our signatures will vary over time. So there's that issue. And finally, going back to our comment earlier at, at the top of this discussion, every state's different. So in some states, there is a procedure set out for notifying the voter when their ballot has been rejected and giving them a cure process, a way that they can correct that if they think that that was done in error. But that's not universally true. And in some cases, you have to be very active as the voter to track your ballot. And, and many states will allow you to do that if because they've got smart coding uh, to at least make sure that you've received it and that you can find out what's happening. But it's not complete. It's not universally true that every state will take active steps to notify you if they rejected your ballot. That's unfortunately the the live in. Yes. Well, in fact, throughout my adult um, uh, voting <laughs> um, experience, and I've been voting since I was old enough to vote, but about 60% of the time I voted um, by absentee ballot through the mail. And so here in Iowa, I have been happy that the Secretary of State's website does provide a way so you can see when they mailed you your requested ballot. They can they also show you when they received it, and they also show when uh, it was counted. So I, I'm happy that 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 is there. I don't think a lot of people in Iowa actually are aware of that, though. But would you maybe suggest that people go to their Secretary of State website as a first place to to see if they can track their ballots in that way? Yeah, I think that's definitely one of the things I would recommend is, uh, particularly this year, given the changes that have had to occur during the primaries, in some cases, some states have taken action to extend those um, those uh, changes to the general election. And uh, so it really behooves voters to be prepared and, and knowledgeable ahead of time. And, and a number of the 
the reputable news outlets are trying to help with this, but of course, sometimes it's changing almost, it seems like on a daily basis. And so that, that also applies, I should say, if you're also planning to vote in person, whether early or on election day, because uh, there may be issues with poll workers, I know we'll get to this, um, mm-hmm. where there may be uh, some lack of the workforce to support this. So there may be last minute changes as well. So I think it's on both sides, whether you plan to vote absentee or vote by mail or vote in person, either early or on election day, you're really becoming well-educated, not just about the issues and who you're planning to vote for, but also about the process, what to expect, because there will be changes for most people. It's don't expect it to be the same as it was in 2016 or 2018 for the last time you voted. Right. Well, and you mentioned poll workers. So I want to go to another issue that a lot of people are claiming. So many are claiming that fraud is occurring at the polling sites and that the poll workers themselves are doing nefarious actions. In fact, um, I've seen, I watch early morning and evening and late night news, and I saw even uh, Donald Trump, I saw on multiple occasions, encouraged his supporters multiple times to not only vote at the polls on election day, but also and stay and be a poll watcher, basically injecting themselves into the voting process and and challenging people who show up to vote. Um, and I know a lot of people read that, that I know that it makes them fear going uh, to vote in person is presenting a safety risk. And some are even thinking they're not going to go vote at all. So there's so many different issues involved in just that issue. You know, the the internal poll worker um, activities that could be nefarious, those who are, are showing up at the polls who don't belong there as far as, you know, belong there being uh, just st- hanging around while others come. Jennifer, I mean... Uh, maybe you can speak to this about, uh, you know, just in general, how widespread, I guess, starting with the poll worker fraud that's being claimed, how widespread would you say it is that fraud is occurring through actions taken by poll workers or at polling sites? Well, I would say that the evidence that we have suggests that it's really a minuscule uh, level of, of fraud. Um, if you think about how easy it would be to have a widespread impact on ballots, if you have to kind of sneak around at a polling place and manipulate individual ballots, um, that's not a way to kind of have a, a, a big effect on election outcomes. The threats that we really worry about are the ones that um, could, could affect you know, millions of ballots, not dozens of ballots. Um, and so when we think about fraud, that, those are the types of fraud that, fraud that we really focus on, on cyber threats. Um, threats to the election infrastructure, um, things that could change the uh, the voter rolls. Um, so you show up to vote and you're actually, you thought you're registered and you're, and you're not there. Um, those are the types of things that have um, systematic and systemic effects on outcomes. So in terms of the, the rate of fraud or the evidence that we have that fraud is happening by poll workers, that's, that's pretty minor. Um, in terms of um, the, the, the idea of being of staying at the polls and observing, um, or challenging um, other voters, you know, there are there are laws that limit um, the activities that can happen at a polling place in terms of electioneering, um, and especially this coming year, um, most polling places will have um, have COVID restrictions in place, 
um, social distancing guidelines and will, in, um, for in most places, likely be limiting the number of people who they can have standing around. So they're not going to want lots of people sort of milling around and just hanging out in a polling place when you're trying to get people in and out and voting safely and keep them separated and keep things sanitary. Um, so I would say that, you know, I don't think that's a reason not to go to the polls. Um, uh, there, uh, number one, because there are uh, laws against it, and number two, just because most polling places, I, I, um, I imagine, are setting, up, setting themselves up to, um, to manage uh, the polling place in a way that will keep people apart and keep people um, safe from, uh, from the health risks. I would say that one thing that is a concern possibly this year is uh, that a lot of, uh, in, in a typical election year, a lot of poll, poll workers tend to be um, older retired people who, um, who have the time to spend um, a day um, at the polling places, whereas people who are actively in the labor force still may not have that um, ability. Uh, but a lot of those um, uh, former poll workers are also those who are at highest risk for um, significant complications where they could contract COVID. So um, in the primaries, we saw that some polling places couldn't open um, because they couldn't get enough polling poll workers. Uh, and so what, what we're likely to see this year um, in, in November um, is to the extent that polling places are fully staffed, they may be staffed with people who haven't worked as poll workers before. And so they mm. not, may not be trained to the same extent or may not have the same experience in terms of navigating some of the contingencies that might arise. And they'll also be facing new contingencies, such as enforcing masks or guidelines or social distancing. So there could be some disruptions that occur at the polling place as a result of poll workers not having um, the same level of experience as the and not being as well prepared to manage some of the um, some of the things that might happen. Someone shows up and isn't on the voter rolls but insists that they are. Um, what's the procedure for provisional ballots and things like that? Um, so making sure that, that states and localities invest in training those new poll workers will be, um, will be really important. Um, and also mapping out, um, sort of as Quentin said, the, the processes and procedures that will happen at the polling place to deal with things like people who don't want to wear masks, um, people who aren't social distancing. How are poll workers going to be prepared um, to handle those types of things? And so I think that when we think about poll workers and risk to the election, um, those are the ones that I think that we're more concerned about. Right. Well, then, as a from a voter standpoint, let's say you know I'm I'm a voter who uh, let's say I I heard about uh, you know the these issues that could be in place at the polling site. So I'm I don't want to go there. I want to to vote uh, through absentee. But then I get my absentee ballot and I have it. And it's like, oh, well, now I'm concerned that it won't get there in time because I'm seeing on the news that uh, the the time that it takes for my um, ballot to get through the mail is too long and it'll get there after the deadline or it'll get lost. So I decided to go drop it off, maybe directly at the the location for the election offices or maybe there's um, in, in my location, maybe there's a voting or ballot drop box. Have you uh, seen any type of risk uh, with regard to just, you know, taking your ballot into the election offices or putting them in these drop boxes? Uh, do you have any type of stats on that, if, if they're riskier or, or less risky than other methods? Well, I think that every method... 
of voting has some risk involved. It's just a different kind of risk. So the first thing I would say is it's important to figure out in your state how you can return your mail-in ballot. It's definitely true that some states allow you to return it at the polling place or at the registrar's office, that some states have drop-offs. You should find out what the specific options are in your state and then pick the one that works best for you. And I think there's different types of risks, whether you choose to mail it back, whether you choose to use the Dropbox, whether you choose to uh, drop it off at the registrar's office. I mean, the biggest risk um, in any case, in any instance, is that somehow your ballot doesn't make it into the hands of the people who are counting the ballot. Um, and so, you know, the, if you're dropping it off at a polling place or at the registrar's office, that risk is somewhat lower because you've already delivered it right to the source. Um, a Dropbox, uh, again, is going to be quicker because they're just going to pick it up from that Dropbox. Um, presumably other people are dropping it off and they set up a system for picking up those ballots from the Dropbox. Um, mail, you have a little bit less control. Uh, you don't know how long it's going to take the Postal Service to get your ballot in. Uh, and obviously things happen, you know, the mail does get lost. Um, as Quentin mentioned, there are ways that you can track your ballot to make sure that it was received and counted. Um, but in terms of exposing yourself to COVID, if your biggest concern is really the physical safety, whether or not you are pers- what you're personally going to be safe from risk of, of contracting um, COVID-19, um, then you may want to minimize your in-person interactions. And so mailing or using a Dropbox where you don't have to interact directly with, with another um, person or be around large groups, as you might at a polling location, um, those uh, that might be a consideration for you. However, if you wake up on election day and you still have your mail-in ballot in your hand, mm-hmm. you know, the best thing to do to make sure that that vote counts is to drop it off at a polling place, yes. um, if, if that's an option in your state. Um, if you have time, then you can consider these other options. But if you wake up on election day morning and you still have that absentee ballot in your hand, um, you want to deliver it as close to the source as possible. Yes, plan ahead, folks. Um, so I, in the time we have left, I want to address some of these um, current claims or conspiracy theories and just get your uh, feedback on them. So, um, and there's a lot of different news outlets or online outlets. One of the claims is, quote, unsolicited millions of ballots that they're, meaning the the people committing voting fraud, they're sending um, is a scam or a hoax, that there's millions of ballots that people just decided to send in themselves. So are there, what does your research reveal about even having that as a possibility that people just make up their own ballots and send them in and have them counted? Um I don't know, Jennifer, if you want to start with that, or maybe Quentin. Our our research really suggests that there that that claims of widespread fraud um, of this type are are not really based in fact. That certainly we, as Quentin said, don't want to you know claim that there is no fraud that that some ballots aren't sent in um, that from people who, don't, who are not eligible to vote. But this idea that there are millions of ballots coming from um, either voters who are not um, eligible to vote or that um, foreign actors are going to uh, create uh, absentee ballots and send those in to manipulate the outcome, there's really no evidence that, that that's occurring. And in fact, it would be fairly difficult for a foreign actor um, or anyone to, to manipulate the system in that way. Number one, it's not that easy to create an absentee ballot that exactly matches 
the, the ballots that are um, that the state pr- provides, most of them are tracked by number, and so you'd have to be able to um, mimic that number system as well. Um, and then most states, as was already discussed um, previously, have some way of verifying um, a legitimate ballot, uh, whether that's through a notary or a witness or um, signature matching or some combination of those things. Um, and and that's that's hard to hard to fake um, unless you're very good at at forging signatures of millions of people. So. Um, number one, there's not that much evidence for it. Number two, it would just be um, infeasible um, and really difficult for somebody to execute a scheme like this um, effectively. Yeah, I would think so. And, you know, another um, claim is about ballot harvesting. And I want to touch upon that. And when, I mean, I hear it more and more. It's almost daily now on TV and online. Um, and even for members of Congress and, and political candidates, uh, basically, you know, by ballot harvesting, this term is generally used to mean people are designating someone else to fill out uh, their ballot for them or to take it in and drop it off for them and uh, on, on their behalf. A lot of times it's from those in nursing homes or retirement centers, hospitals, or other places. But the claim is that these designated others are actually just going around and gathering dozens, hundreds, or thousands of, of ballots from people and then completing the ballots themselves uh, with the candidates they want and not what the legitimate voters actually wanted. So basically they're replacing the ballots and then they're submitting them to be counted. So Quentin, I don't, I know you mentioned earlier, and I think it's an important point that every state and even every precinct is different, but generally throughout the states, um, what are the general requirements for others to return ballots on behalf of others? And then, you know, are there limits that would prevent this type of harvesting of dozens or hundreds or thousands of ballots by other people? Yeah, well, as you say, I mean, it, it does vary. So in, in some states, uh, really, it's limited to somebody who is a, a direct relative, for example. Um, one of the things is you think about people who are allowed to assist voters at a polling place, for example, so that's in-person voting. There are, mm-hmm. there are restrictions on who can do that. Um, and particularly, you're not allowed to do that if you're that person's employer or if you're that person's union boss, for example, and that sort of reflects historical concerns. Um so th- there are similar kinds of restrictions in some states w- that apply to who can uh, collect a ballot and return it on behalf of another voter. Uh, other states have taken a little bit more of an expansive view of that. California has loosened that uh, in part as a response to the uh, pandemic concerns, which is that there may be larger numbers of people who need that kind of assistance, and they may not actually have uh, a direct relative who would be available to do that for them. Um, there are cases, uh, as we say, that have shown that ballot harvesting happens. There was a case that's come up a number of times uh, in 2018 in North Carolina. Um, and that was a that was somebody who was affiliated with a Republican organization. Um, so it, it's important also to note that that fraud is is uh, bipartisan uh, as well in the United States. So we see examples on both sides. Uh, in fact, all parties, not just the major parties, where this does occur. Um, mm-hmm. So it, there there are certainly those kinds of restrictions. Um, it it's uh, less likely. Uh, 
on the vote casting side as opposed to the registration side where you'll see thousands of, of ballots being collected by an individual for, for returning to a polling place. In many places, that would be that would not be allowed. Okay. Well, believe it or not, we're already down to just uh, four minutes left. So in this the time that's left, if each of you could take maybe one minute, one to one and a half minutes, and tell us a main point that you want to leave with our listeners today about the differences in, you know, voting security or ballots or any other voting tip that you want to leave our listeners with. Uh, Jennifer, why don't you start and then we'll go to Quentin. Yeah, so I think that the best way for you to vote is the way that you're most likely to do it. So I think you need to think realistically about the types of obstacles that might get in your way. Is the most likely obstacle that you're going to plan to vote in person and something's going to come up and you're not going to make it to the polls? Or is the more likely option that you're going to plan to vote absentee and then you forget to mail the ballot back? Um, everyone kind of knows their own um, hang-ups, and so know kind of what's going to stop you from voting. And then invest the time to figure out the rules in your state, as Quentin said at the start. Figure out what uh, is different this year. Uh, if you want to vote in person, uh, uh, get yourself used to what uh, the polling is going to look like, what the process is going to be. If you want to vote absentee, make sure you're aware of the rules. Does the ballot have to be mailed back in an envelope, or can it go back in by itself? Um, where do you sign it? How many places do you have to sign it? What do you need to fill out? Um, make sure you know exactly what you um, need to, whether it's by calling the Secretary of State's office, going on the website. Inform yourself so you know how to vote, and then make a plan. Great. And how about you, Quentin? Well, I think I'll just make a couple of quick points. I certainly agree with everything Jennifer just said. I, I think the first thing is to, that every American should know that people who work on elections, who run elections, poll workers, as well as professional elections workers, they're dedicated to their job uh, and, and they do it to the best of their abilities. Uh, and so they are not there to try to disenfranchise uh, someone or to advantage one party over the other. I, I would say... Um, the other thing is that this year, particularly with the pandemic and all the changes that have happened, it, every the elections workers and poll workers, they have a tough job uh, and and voters should expect that there may be changes, there may be inconveniences and just everyone not only should have a plan, but I think we should have some patience, uh, not just on election day um, because of all the volume of uh, absentee ballots. I think we will not know the results on election night. And so we'll all need collectively to have patience as this election process work through. And quite frankly, partisan um, uh, maneuvering to try to cast aspersions as well as what foreign adversaries may do to try to stoke those divisions that would undermine our perceived uh, perception of the integrity of the election, that really doesn't serve anyone's interest. Uh, so I think everyone having a patient, having a plan as well as patience is really the important thing. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Today, I've been speaking with Jennifer Cavanaugh and Quentin Hodgson from Rand Corporation about voting security. Please check out their new research results and book, An Assessment of State Voting Processes Preparing for Elections During a Pandemic, and their many other research reports on voting elections and associated security issues. And then please, Send feedback about this show. Would you like to hear more about this topic? Well, just let me know. And uh, you can contact me using Rebecca Harold at RebeccaHerald.com. 
You will be able to hear all of my shows if you can't make it on the first Saturday of each month. You can listen to all the recordings on demand on your favorite news app, in addition to on the voiceamerica.com business channel website. Until our next show, ask those that you do business with and work for if they are doing all they can to secure the information you've been you've actually entrusted to them. And also, as mentioned, um, be prepared for voting and be kind to your poll workers. They're doing the best they can. They're volunteering. Stay safe out there and be privacy aware in the month ahead. Bye for now. Thank you for tuning in this week. Data security and privacy with the Privacy Professor can be heard live the first Saturday of each month at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until next time, stay safe. <laughs>